Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. and welcome to this week's episode of the Proper Class Podcast. I'm Hannah Chiswick. And I'm Laura Checkley. And we are, of course, here to celebrate all things working class, because if we don't, who will? As always, we sit down with a working class hero to celebrate their life and achievements and discuss just how they got where they are today. And on that note, who are we celebrating this week, Han? Well, I won't lie, I'm absolutely chuffed to introduce this episode's guest. He is a comedian, presenter, actor and most would agree a national treasure. As a young man, he started out doing his act in the working men's clubs of his home city of Liverpool before getting a big break when he won ITV's New Faces. After meeting on the Russ Abbott Laughter Show, he went on to form a much-loved double act with Dustin G. the duo getting their own series entitled The Laughter Show, but sadly it was a partnership cut short by Dustin's untimely death. For 15 years, he was host of Family Fortunes, becoming famous for meeting the ridiculous answers given by the contestants with the catchphrase, if the answer's up there, I'll give you the money myself. That was a terrible impression. (laughs) He has gone on to have an extensive theatre career, appearing in musicals such as Chicago, Hairspray, Adam's Family, Legally Blonde, Spamalot, and not to forget High School Musical 2. I did not know you were in that. (laughs) He has also appeared in numerous plays, including Art, directed by me, A Servant of Two Masters, Marlon Brando's Corset, Enter the Pier, Neville's Island, Down the Dock Road, directed by me, (laughs) Murderer, When We Were Married, Skylight, oh, and the one-man play Jigsy about Liverpool comedian Jackie Hamilton, directed by me. (laughs) Oh, poor you having to work with Hannah so many times, blimey. Recently, though, he has been poshing it up at the Royal Shakespeare Company in The Provoked Wife and Venice Preserved. In 2005, he appeared as a fictional version of himself in Ricky Gervais's Extras, an experience that he claims changed his life. He spent two years in Corrie playing Michael Rodwell and even came runner-up in Celebrity Masterchef. He has literally done it all. And if we aren't careful, we could feel the entire podcast just reading out his achievements. So without further ado, give it up for one of my all-time favourite people on and off stage, the one and only Les Dennis. Woo-woo! Yay! Hello, Les. Oh, thank you both for that. That was lovely. And gosh, (laughs) there's a lot there, isn't there? (laughs) Sometimes you forget what you've done. There was a lot to put in there. It was so hard to, like, cut it down. (laughs) It's amazing. It's so varied and you're so versatile it's incredible yeah well i mean some people don't they they say you know i'm a i'm a jack of all trades master of none i have i used to say that because i think we'll get to this but when you are working class you have imposter syndrome and so you go oh yeah jack of all trades master of none but now i actually change that to jack of all trades master of some uh-huh. because i do believe that i have honed certain crafts and I'm proud enough to say I know what I'm doing when I do it. Do you think that comes with having done it for a long time? Yeah, I think it does. You know, when I, when I very first started out, um, I started doing talent competitions at the age of 12, 13, when we went to Butlins for our yearly holiday. Um, and then from 14, um, I got into the, the adult talent competition. And at 14, to win a heat and beat all these people who were so much older than me, I was like, this can't be right. This can't be right. I'm still a kid. Mm. Um, am I? Am I worthy? Am I? Can I do this? 
Um, so it is, I think, as you get older, as you become more comfortable in your skin and in your profession, then you do say, you know what, I, I deserve now to sit back and say, yeah, I can do this. But it doesn't stop you, say, for instance, on the first day at the RSC, going in and thinking, I've still got imposter syndrome. I'm a working class guy who is here with all these posh actors who've been to all these great drama schools. And what am I doing here? You still so what, so what you're telling me, Les, as another actor, is that it never gets any easier. <laughs> no, it doesn't. We always really like to start by asking our guests to take us back to a place in time that has like a special meaning to them, somewhere that has a connection to their working class roots. So if you were going to take us back to somewhere, where, where would you take us to? I was thinking about this today and wondering, where would I take you? Would I go back to, to my school? Would I go back to, um, uh, you know, playgrounds with other kids? And where I eventually went back to was our kitchen in our house in Thornton Road um, in Childwall when I was a kid, because it was the time that I spent there with my mum that I think shaped me and introduced me to the arts. She was a big, big uh, lover of the arts. And, you know, I can remember peeling potatoes. I'm, I'm, I still, I don't use, you know, those peeler things. I still peel with a yeah. knife because my mum taught me to peel with a knife. Yeah, my mum does. My mum does. I still peel with a knife. And I, and I remember when I peel potatoes now, I can remember standing there being basically my mum's commie chef on a Sunday morning before our Sunday dinner, it wasn't a Sunday lunch, because that's, that's posh people who say lunch. <laughs> it was our Sunday dinner. Uh, my dad would go out for his two or three pints with his mate, Joe Nolan, from across the road, um, and would come back, and at three o'clock, we would have a Sunday dinner. That was every week. It was beef and, and all the trimmings and my mum's homemade Yorkshire pudding and all that. But I would stand there with my mum while she would talk to me about books, talk to me about about Dracula, uh, and and kind of tell me the story, tell me the story, and then say, "Will you go and get some coal?" And she knew I didn't want to go out and get some coal because <laughs> she just frightened the living daylights out of me. My mum was a you know when she was thirteen, fourteen, she sang um, solo uh, at Liverpool Cathedral because she had a beautiful voice. She sang Ave Maria, and. She also went um, and stood outside the Empire Theatre where there was a, a show called Carol Levis Discoveries. Um, and Carol Levis was the Huey Green or the Simon Cowell of his day. And it was a massive talent show on the radio. And there was a, a, it used to start with paging Carol Levis, paging Carol Levis. And my mum went and stood outside the stage door and shouted through the stage door, paging Carol Levis, paging Carol Levis. <laughs> And Carol Levis walked out and looked at her and said, young lady, if you've got as much talent as you've got, you've got nerve, I will audition you, uh, come back tomorrow. And my mum ran all the way home to Garston, which was about three miles, and said to her mum, I've got this audition with Carol Levis. And she said, no, you haven't. You start working the bobbins. She started work the next day in a factory. And she missed that chance. So she could see in me something I wanted to do. And she was a show business mum, but in the, in the nurturing way, not in the pushy way. Wow. So tell us a bit, obviously you're touching on your childhood now, Liz. What was it like for you? How was school? Were you academic? So I wasn't that academic, but I loved being in the school plays. And where I was really fortunate was that when I joined the, the drama group at um, Quarry Bank, the people in it were Jude Kelly, who went on to uh, form, uh, or, well, to, to run the, the West Yorkshire Playhouse and the South Bank. And also um, uh, a horror writer called Clive Barker, who wrote um, and uh, all the Hellraiser books and all the books of blood oh, wow. um, and wrote and directed the film Hellraiser um, at Nightbreed. He lives in LA now and is an amazing artist and producer. And, you know, even the guy who played uh, Pinhead in that in the film Hellraiser, Doug Bradley was part of that drama group as well. Wow. So Clive took me under his mantle 
and like said, you don't know enough. You don't know enough. Here, read this. Here, read H.P. Lovecraft. Here, read Ray Bradbury. When we went to school with the art group, and and all lot of the kids of my year were going, oh, let's just sag off and just go and you know do what we want and get drunk. He was like, no, we're going to go to the National. We're going to go to the Tate. And he and he showed me Hieronymus Bosch and Bruegel and all these artists that kind of formed my. It, it filled the gaps. I remember reading Dirk Bogard's book, where you know, well, all of his books, and how he wrote about. He had, you know, big gaps in his education, and he met a woman through a correspondence. They just wrote to each other, and he called her his needlework lady, who filled in all those gaps for him. And Clive did that for me, and I mm-hmm. suddenly went right. Well, I want to, I want to know more now, and I, and and that's probably with my mum and with Clive Barker. I think they fused and ignited my interest in the arts. Wow, it's incredible. And so when you left school, what did you do? Did you, could you get a sort of regular job or did you, were you already working like in the working men's clubs doing stand up and stuff or your act or what were you, well, what were you doing? I've never, I always put it, I put it on my Twitter feed that I've never had a proper job and I haven't. Um, I literally, I had a Saturday job at Burton's, um, but even then the manager was so lovely. He used to let me go at half past five if I had a gig in North Wales. He'd go, oh, you can go early, Les. Um, so um, I, I was doing the working men's clubs while I was still at school. And it was my mum who, um, again, you know, she decided uh, against uh, all my all the rest of my family laughed at her. Uh, she said, I'm going to get a car. And we all went, what? Mom, you're going to get a car? And she, she got a little um, wooden uh, money box and she wrote on it in biro mum's car box and we all laughed and laughed she put like pennies and shillings and tanners in and she got enough money to get herself a morris 1100 Amazing. Still, you know which i still remember 9406 lv the registration plate <laughs> she was able then to she worked at uh, lucas aerospace you know which was a massive factory in liverpool and she worked in factories all her life and um she knew a concert secretary at a club, uh, the Nor Green Social Club, and that concert secretary gave me my first um, ten minutes experience, as he called it. He said, "We'll we'll give you your exes," which was like your expenses. We'll give you your exes, lad. So I went on in between. There was a comic in Liverpool called Bert Cook, who was pre Jackie Hamilton and was like as as brilliant as Jackie Hamilton, uh, but very blue. Mm. And I went on between him uh, and and probably the stripper, <laughs> don't know. And um, and I did for my exes. Uh, and when I came off, um, the the concert secretary came up to me and said, "Here you are, lad." And he pushed two pounds into my hands. I was seventeen, um, and I was doing this Saturday job for a pound a day. Wow! And I'd suddenly be given two pounds for ten minutes. So yeah, so from then on, um, that's what I, you know, I started to get, I got an agent, uh, Stuart Gillespie in Liverpool, who I still talk to. He's probably 90 now and lives in Bournemouth. And, um, you know, he, he gave me my first gigs and my mum used to drive me around Wales and the Northwest and we'd go. And if I was, if I was doing well, then she would, you know, she'd be great. And, and if I wasn't doing well, she'd get up and do three numbers and save me. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Just going back though, Les, how did you make sort of obviously that interest in the plays at school? When did it click in your head that you're like, I'm going to write a 10-minute stand-up? <laughs> like, how, how did that transition happen? Well, again, it was my mum that when I was about 12, she went to, uh, with my dad, they went to see Sammy Davis Jr. Wow. at the Empire in Liverpool. Uh, which is was the was the Palladium for us in in Liverpool, the massive big theatre, three and a half thousand seaters. Came back like with the program. She went through every single thing he did in his act, and she also brought a uh, she bought um, Sammy Davis Jr. impersonates uh, the, an EP, um, and uh, I used to play that round and round on my sister's dance set. Um, until it was scratched, and you know, and and I I built my act. I started as an impressionist by just copying 
Sammy Davis Jr. doing Jimmy Stewart. Oh, well, one year old and gray, dear. Well, well, would you promise that you'll you'll never stray, dear? Because I, I mean, <laughs> I gotta have somebody, and I I got you, Sonny boy. So I kind Love of like, I knew every impression he did. And in fact, when I went to that Butlin's adult talent competition, I did him doing Jerry Lewis singing Lulu's Back in Town. Gotta get my old tuxedo pressed. Gotta sew a button on my vest. So, I mean, that was it. I started as an impressionist. With impressions, Because yeah. I'd learned that from him. And then I graduated from Sammy Davis Jr. And then uh, Freddie Starr took the Palladium by storm in, I think it was 1970. Um, uh, I, I had a reel-to-reel tape recorder, kind of listened again and again, and just stole his act and did um, did his act on Opportunity Knocks. But you steal from the best to begin with, and then you do, decide to find your own way. Well, actually, on that, Liz, when I was younger, I used to do impersonations, yeah. and my impersonation used to be your impersonation of Mavis. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you, Go that on. was my... Go do it now. <laughs> Oh, I don't really know. <laughs> that's that great. No, that's great. <laughs> well, that came out of um, the Mavis impression came out of the double act with Dustin, you know, because he did such a fantastic Vera. <laughs> um, and, and then, uh, you know, th- those years were fantastic. He, he again, uh, you know, uh, a guy from from working class York who had phenomenal, phenomenal talent. This going backwards a little bit from that. So obviously winning new faces yeah. must have been a huge turning point and a, a huge kind of growth of your market from like the success you were having Liverpool and the North Western. Yeah. Like, so what what was that like? What happened then? What was that process? It was, it was amazing because I, I had done, in 1971, I did Opportunity Knox and I didn't win. I came uh, fourth or, or that's what they told me. <laughs> I think they told everybody who didn't come first, second or third, oh, you came fourth because, you know, they, they only gave the, the top three. Um, and the week after, my agent got calls, and I said, do you get any calls? And he went, yeah, we've just had three cancellations. <laughs> 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 they, said you, they said you were so rubbish. So, uh, you know, when, when I went on New Faces, and, and I thought, oh, no, please let this be better, I did New Faces, and um, again, I didn't win with the panel. I won with the viewers, and I came back. And I won with the viewers again, not the panel. And then I came back a third time and I won with the panel. Uh, Tony Hatch gave me 10, 10, 10 and 9, which was in, unheard of because he was so, he was the Simon Cowell of his day. He was really tough. Um, and so, you know, that was a launching pad for me because to go on that and uh, on the final, there was me and Victoria Wooden, neither of us won. Wow. We both got beaten by a guy called Tony Maiden. So um, New Faces was a great start because in those days, if you did a show like that, it was on every Saturday night and there were only three channels. So you got seen, you know, um, four, four performances on that set me up for summer season, set me up for, for all sorts of cabaret dates. And, you know, in fact, out of New Faces, I got the, the Butlin's late night comedy circuit. And I used to go from... Uh, Liverpool to Bognor Regis and do a, a one o'clock in the morning, go on and, and top the bill there. Following, you know, from previous weeks, people like Bob Monkhouse, Diana Dawes, Huey Green, all these people who were known. And then, you know, the, the campers that week must have thought, who? Les who? <laughs> There's my imposter syndrome again. <laughs> yeah. Are you still living in, still living at home at that point? Are you still living in Liverpool? Uh, when uh, I got married at 20, Lynn and I got married I mean, literally, uh, I had started um, when, I, when I left school um, and got new faces. I got a manager, um, Mike Hughes, who was like in, in Liverpool. He was, he was the biggest manager in Liverpool, but also was becoming one of the biggest managers in the country because he had all the comedians. He had Johnny Ball and Ken Goodwin. Um, and you know, he didn't have Bernard Manning, but he, cause Bernard Manning worked out of his own club, embassy club and was his own manager, but he had a lot of those comics from those, those shows. He had Russ Abbott at that time with the black Abbots. So I started with Mike Hughes mm. and literally, um, the week I remember kind of, uh, Lynn, Lynn said, you're going to have to ring him and tell him, uh, we're going to get married. And he was very against us getting married at that age. He wanted to kind of, 
he was very autocratic as a manager and he wanted to say, you know, you, you're going down this route and, and, and being married won't help and you'll, be, you'll find your way from your wife and all this. He, he was really anti it. Um, and when I said, called him up and I'd written it down, I'm going to get married, Mike. What? You know, he went, well, I'm going to get married. What, what, can we have a date? Can we have a date? Because I couldn't get a day off. And he went, if you must, you can get married the week you're at the Shakespeare with Tommy Cooper. So on Wednesday of the week, I, we, we opened on the Monday uh, night. What, my meeting with Tommy Cooper, I worked you know, with him. Fantastic to be working, supporting him at this club in Liverpool called the Shakespeare. Oh, wow. Theater. Wow. And uh, on in the afternoon, sitting there waiting, thinking, "Oh gosh, um, I, I'm going to meet Tommy Cooper maybe." And then uh, this weird guy with a really long hair and uh, Bermuda shorts uh, and nothing else just came in the room and went, "Aya!" <laughs> <laughs> and, <it> was- <laughs> and he went, "I just thought I'd try this wig on. I, I want to do something visual." So that was my that was my meeting with Tommy Cooper, Aya. So you know. So I met him on the Monday. I worked on the Monday, Tuesday. Then on the Wednesday morning, at the age of 20, looking 12, uh, and Lynn, uh, 19, about to be 20, we got married in Liverpool. uh, And then uh, we had our reception at the Shakespeare that night. So everybody, all my wedding guests, came to watch me work. So, you know, after I'd been on, I come down to my family and watch Tommy Cooper on my wedding night. Wow. To be fair, that's probably the best wedding night entertainment you could possibly get. Isn't <laughs> oh, it? my God. Can it you imagine? Great. It's great. Yeah. Except my, my uncle was really, oh, God, he embarrassed us. But when I look back, it was funny because Tommy Cooper, at the end of his act, they asked him if he'd do this auction. So he did this auction, this comedy auction. Uh, and he was kind of, he was like, I've got his, uh, I've got his toaster. What you give me for this toaster? And my uncle John shouted, two slices of bread. <laughs> <laughs> and Tommy looked and went, that's funny. Wow. Taking a bit of a sort of tangent here, but obviously I've, I've kind of got to know Liverpool a bit through you because yeah. we, I've been up there and, and worked with you. And obviously we did Jigsy, which was very much a big sort of love letter yeah. to Jackie Hamilton, an, an amazing yeah. uh, Liverpool comedian. And I've totally fallen in love with Liverpool, as you know, I absolutely yeah. love it. It's yeah. an amazing city. And one of the things I love so much about Liverpool is it's such a working class city yeah. at its roots. Yeah. And yet, yeah. unlike other cities, it is absolutely a city that combines like working class culture with artistic yeah expression and it feels yeah. so open to everyone in a way that I've never really experienced in any other city what why do you think that is that Liverpool is such a hotbed for for art I, I think it's I mean Newcastle um Belfast you know I think ports I think it being a port is important right, okay. because it's a cultural hotbed it's a cultural melting pot in that way there there is this kind of I mean I think Arthur Askey said you have to be a comedian to live in Liverpool, and I think I, I think that it's an it's a natural native wit, but it's also a love of culture, a love of storytelling. Mm. You know, I, I listened to Jimmy Mulville the, the other day talking about his dad being a wonderful storyteller, being a docker, and being able to weave stories. And when we did Down the Dock Road, some of the stories that came from Alan Bleasdale and some of the the, you mm. know, the, the humor of the Dockers and the, the nicknames, the names they would give to each other, you know, uh, Little Red Riding Hood, because he went home to his grandma's for his dinner, you know, <laughs> a diesel fit, a diesel fit the kids and diesel fit the wife. All, the, all, those, all those names that, you know, <laughs> Cinderella, um, I've got to be off by 12. <laughs> hey. All those nicknames they gave each other um, and, and the love of storytelling, I think, meant that they were never afraid and my mum was working class, but she didn't think, oh, ballet's beyond me, you know, or, or opera's beyond me. She, she wanted to know more of that. And certainly with the, with the Liverpool Everyman in, its, in the 1970s when Alan Dosser was artistic director there and that company that was phenomenal, you know, Jonathan Price and Bernard Hill and Alison Steadman mm. and Julie Walters and, I, you know, Anthony Sher and... An incredible group of 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 actors and uh, writers, 
uh, that were, you know, Willie Russell coming through and Alan Bleasdale, mm. you know, and all, all working class, really. But it had that, the theatre had that common touch. Mm. They would go and watch um, Kurt Vile's uh, Beggar's Opera. Is it, is it Beggar's Opera by Kurt Vile or the Thripney Opera? Um, they'd go and watch that. Um, they, they'd watch it being done in a, in a way that was, I nearly said palatable, but they don't need palatable. That was accessible to them, you know? Just not um, patronising in not any way. Not patronising, yeah. 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 And, I think, and I think that's why um, Liverpool still has that love of, and, and, you know, the Royal Court is the People's Theatre, isn't it? And I think also, like, my favourite place I've ever worked and probably one of my favourite nights ever as a director is when we did Jigsy at the Royal Court. And for anyone listening who doesn't know the Royal Court in Liverpool, it's the most amazing, beautiful old musical. Art Deco, stunning, beautiful Mm. building. And everybody arrives early and has dinner. Yeah. <laughs> which is absolutely amazing. In a theatre, yeah. And, and and talks during, you know, yeah. like get so involved and so engaged with the performance. I think, I think that's when we were doing Jigsy and the person, as you were doing your kind of big dramatic ending, what did that person say? I'm, I'm kind of falling to the floor and I fall and collapse. And, you know, and the, most of the audience are just stunned. And this voice goes, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favourite moments ever. And is it are the prices accessible in Liverpool? Because that's another oh, thing. Yeah, yeah. Here in London, yes. prices are so extortionate that you know, like my working class niece who loves theatre, incidentally, can never afford it. That she can't afford to go to theatre. I'm a theatre director, and I can't afford to go to the theatre <laughs> in London. Yeah. If you go, if you go to the Royal Court and you have uh, a dinner, if you have a, you, you can have everything from scouse to a ribeye steak, and your ticket, including dinner, will be. No more than 20, 25 quid. It's just such an amazing place. Yeah. I have to take you there, Law. You'd like love oh, it beyond anything. Oh, sounds like my kind of night oh, out. It's 20 quid just, and all that. You're joking, aren't you? So you're kind of in, in that environment where being working class and being very much a creative being isn't seen at odds with each other no. at all in Liverpool. Mm. I feel like those things sit together so well. But for you, was there a time when you suddenly be- really became aware of being working class, of your class, that um, you can remember? I, I think probably uh, when I became friends with Clyde Barker and Jude and, you know, they, they were all kind of from, you know, the posh part of Liverpool, from um, Allerton and Mossley Hill. And um, at the same time as having that, I had two groups of friends. I had this group, we were kind of very arty and, you know, and, and I used to hide that from my football playing mates. Ronnie Corbishley and John McEvitt and all the all the lads and Les Robertson because I was like oh they'll they'll hate me if I'm saying I'm doing this so I had two different lives and one was kind of working class and and sport driven and the other was sitting uh, Lynn Webster who was my first wife or Jude Kelly's house or Clive Barker's house sitting reading Shakespeare or or Lovecraft or or Winnie the Pooh When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So you're on the comedy circuit. Uh, You're in your sort of early 20s. What happens next? How? Did you get to sort of family fortunes? How old were you when you did family fortunes? Um, I let me see. Uh, that would be eighty-seven, so I would be thirty-four. I, I did the, the the working men's clubs and then the cabaret clubs, and I was supporting people like the Three Degrees and Roger Whittaker and um, Del Shannon. You know these uh, kind of rock and roll stars. Um, Tony Christie. Oh, wow. So I was the comic to all these big, big names in, in, in cabaret. Um, and then one night, I think uh, it was when I was supporting the Three Degrees at a club in the Circus Tavern in um, Perfleet. It's near, near Dagenham Way, where the you know, Ford's um, Dagenham. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The Circus Tavern. I was, I was working there. And afterwards, a, a producer called Tony Sontar came back and said, we want you to do a summer season with Jimmy Tarbuck uh, this year at, at um, Scarborough. So I went from cabaret to theatre. Wow. Is that a point in your career where you suddenly were dealing, when did you start sort of dealing with fame for the first time? When did you suddenly stop being known well in the street beyond Liverpool, if you know what I mean? When did that happen? It was the dusting years. I mean, uh, it's it, you know, people started to recognise us from the the Ross Abbott Madhouse, but then when we got, we both did that night with Tommy Cooper. Um, we were the next act on after Tommy had collapsed on stage, oh my God. and we were we were in the wings. And the producer said, "Is that a joke?" And um, Tommy Cooper's son, Tommy Junior, said, "No, my dad has a bad back; he wouldn't be able to get up from that." And so they, it was live TV. They said, "Cue commercial break." And um, David Bell, the producer, and Jimmy had a chat on stage jimmy was very shaken because he loved tommy so much and they they had moved tommy behind the curtains that he was working in front of and they turned to us and said you guys ready to go on again and we went oh right it is carrying on we thought it would be pulled the show oh my god so we went on after the commercial break and in some weird way we came to the attention that night i always say and it sounds a bit dramatic, kind of Phoenix out of the ashes, but we we couldn't be Phoenix out of the ashes because we were never as good as Tommy was. But something happened that night. Some kind of alchemy came out of Tommy's death and our our start happened that night. And and then that's when the kind of fame thing started. And I kind of find it hard to handle, I think. You know, I'd had my mum's death in, in 77, um, my mum didn't really fully see, you know, all the stuff that came, but she knew I was going to, she was really confident that it was all going to happen. <laughs> and then my dad, who was like, oh. get a proper bloody job, but then loved it. Um, my dad died in 82 and then Dustin in 86. So I was kind of reeling what? and suddenly I'm doing, a, you know, a national game show. And I think I kind of went off the rails then because of it, you know, just, just fame and not, I mean, I call my, I call my autobiography must the show go on because I now, you know, with hindsight, believe mm. that it shouldn't. If you, you know, you should be able to go away and grieve. And I didn't. I, I, I was told so many times by people, by promoters, by producers, you've got to go on, you've got to go on. And so, you know, that's when fame hit. But fame was a kind of poison chalice in a way. Wow. And the, we've spoken about so many things over this, but I'm not sure that even I know. When did you do your first... I find it really irritating, uh, the idea that, you know, doing comedy isn't acting, because, of course, it absolutely is. And we've had that oh, conversation yeah, many course. times as well. But in terms of in a sort of taking on a role mm. and acting as someone else, when did you make that transition into doing a, a play? Or Well, I, I, of course, I've done all that stuff with Clive and with Jude, and we've done it, you know, kind of at, at a time, you know, when I was 
thinking, well, what do I do? Do I go to drama school or do I carry on with the, the clubs? And I carried on with the clubs. But then um, I think it probably was me and my girl. Right. So, I mean, it was a, which was a massive, you know, thing to get. But I think the probably the first time where a director went, you know what, I think you can do this was, let me think, it would be about 92. I'd, I'd finished me and my girl in, in 90, I did 91 the whole year uh, and then closed it. <laughs> it had been going for 10 years and I closed it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a, a lovely director called Ewan Smith, who I think had done a lot at the National and at the RSC, called me up and said, will you come and read for me a play called Skylight, mm. David Hare's Skylight. So that for me was baptism by fire because it was a wonderful role. Mm. And um, Jill, what's the beautiful, she ran the watermill, Jill. Oh, I know, and I can't think either. Yeah. Um, and and the, I read for them and they both went, yeah, we'd like you to do this. And that was that was massive faith to have me do that, you know, because Gambon had done it at the National and Bill Nye had done it. And there's me, you know, straight out of Family Fortunes playing this uh, Jeff, I think his name is, the restaurateur, who I think was apparently based on um, Conran, massively based on him. So to, to get the chance to do that. But, you know, again, I think what happened to begin with was critics would come with sharpened pencils ready to go up no 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 and then begrudgingly um and denise welsh and i always talk about this um she'll say to me were you a revelation again darling yeah i was yeah because every time she acts she's a revelation and you know i was a revelation even when i went to the rsc the um, artistic director came up to me and went who'd have thought (laughs) after (laughs) i was like Oh, thanks. Well, you know, you booked me. Um, so, you, know, <laughs> you, hopefully. Yeah. Do you think, Les, that come, is that is that the family fortunes thing that did that? Did you feel like you had so much to prove after that, that everyone just saw you as a presenter? It's a baggage, and... you know, it is a baggage that you carry. If you've done something that the public only know you for, then it is going to take a while mm. to, you know, to make people. I, I used to say, you know, um, to be taken seriously as an actor is is like, you know, trying to turn around the Titanic. And Claire, my wife, reminded me that the Titanic sank, so probably best not to use that <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, one review I got, and, and it was it was only a few years ago, which was just said, Les Dennis is now proving himself to be a comic actor rather than, act, uh, rather than a comic who acts a bit. And that mm. just really made my day because I thought, ah, it is happening. It is, you know, suddenly I am being taken seriously. And it, it is something, you know, Hannah, you know, because we worked together when you had just um, taken on the massive job at Harrogate and, you know, the preconceptions that people had about you for that for that job. I think that's a really we interesting had that in time, wasn't it? We had that in common, didn't we? We definitely had that in common. And I think that's mm. how we sort of struck up such a great working relationship and a friendship as well, because I think we were having a similar experience at a similar time in a way. And I, I, I've spoken to Laura a lot over the years about that experience of doing the play art, a brilliant play, mm. an amazing yeah. play that we both love. But yeah. um, Is that how you two met? It was on art, the play, yeah. 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 It was, yeah, absolutely. And um, it was my first play as artistic director in Harrogate. And uh, Les was casting it with two brilliant actors, yeah, uh, John Dutteen and, um, and Chris, Casanova. Chris Casanova, who we oh. <laughs> adored uh, and, and yeah. sadly passed yeah. away. But uh, an amazing, amazing man and um, probably the poshest man you could ever hope to meet. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was just a delightful, just amazing man. Yeah. It was very interesting doing art, and and I don't know if you remember, but we were doing a press junket for art, and all the press came in on that one day to interview us. Yeah. And um, I remember there was a slightly up-himself journalist, and he was asking the three of you about your love of art. Right. And he asked Chris about art, and Chris spoke about his love for various artists and, 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 and similarly with John. And then he came to you. <laughs> and he's and as he asked you, he laughed and he said, "So Les, do you have any interest in art?" Uh, as yeah. if obviously you wow. don't. Yeah. And I remember thinking, "Yeah, wow, we have such a huge class, yeah. high art 
sort of low art That's fixation, right. fixation in this country. Absolutely, yeah. You know, they would be highbrow and I would be lowbrow. And I think I think I do remember that. And I think I threw the Hieronymus Bosch and the Bruegel stuff that Clive taught me straight at him. And he was like, oh, oh, didn't expect that. Yeah, expect good on you. Because it was at the same time that um, yeah. I was asked in a press interview who my favourite playwright was. Now, bear in mind, I'd just been appointed artistic director of a theatre. So one would hope I'd read a few plays. Yeah. But they uh, <laughs> asked me who my favourite playwright was. And I said, Ibsen. And they went, who is it really? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Just talking about class, obviously. Obviously now, you know, you're hugely successful living your life that you live now, very different to the one Mm. than when you were a child. Like for me, example, you know, uh, although I – I own my own flat, one of my only, I'm the only yeah. person in my family really to own my property and I lead a very different life. But inherently I still feel working class. Do you still feel working class even though, you know, you've got yeah. and, you, you know. know what, um, <laughs> I, I think I've talked before about those, those years when the fame hit. I kind of denied my roots a bit. Um, I kind of went, you know, right. oh, you know. I, I remember when uh, Philip, my son, was christened on on christening day, um, and I I look back to that day and um, I feel embarrassed about how I was with my family. When my 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 sister, um, my younger sister Mandy, um, decided. I mean, it was 1979. My mum had died uh, two years before, and so. Um, and I'd kind of started to get successful then, um, and st- got the big house, uh, and had the big, um, party, the, 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 uh, christening party, um, but was more interested in, in talking to my accountant and my posh friends than I was with my own family for a bit. And I, and I lost my way with them. And, and I remember my sister that day and I said to her, please don't do that, Mandy. And we had these massive big bottles of wine, Suave, and she was drinking out the bottle and I was, and she was doing it to, to make a point. Um, yeah. It's something I wrote about in the book and said that I lost my way with them. So I feel more working class now and more connected to my family because I, I luckily, my sister Marg wouldn't let me go. Mm. Uh, and, you know, she is the matriarch of our family. And she wouldn't let me go, and she she was the one that pulled me back down from that where where I thought I was too good for it all, and uh, yeah, so I you know I'm thankful for that because it's that it's a thing that I talk about a lot with friends now that are doing all right, you know, and I feel incredibly yeah. privileged to be where I am now, but I still yeah. feel so connected to my roots. I totally understand that, and it's like what makes you working class? Is it how you were brought up, or is it what you <laughs> yeah. have now in front of you? It's just an interesting conversation, isn't yeah. it? To what makes one working class? Um, you know, I uh, my kids go to a nice school. They um, people always say to me that my kids are down to earth, and I've made sure they're down to earth, and I make sure that they are aware of how privileged and how lucky they are, but also. They they don't lose touch with any of our family. Um, my sister is their auntie Marg, you know, and my sister's seventy four, um, and my kids are about to be thirteen and ten, um, and, and my grown up one who's forty. So um, they are yeah. absolutely grounded, and you know, we live in an area where they were, we're at a school where kids were saying, "But where's your pool?" And well, you know, and and I went, "No, let's let's stop this." So we we moved schools, you know, we found a school that was absolutely more down to earth. And I, I don't want them to have and to feel that they are entitled. So I think that, you know, um, uh, my working class roots are to do with a lack of entitlement now Yeah, for me. I, I suppose on a more positive note, uh, what advantages do you think being working class has given you in your life and your career? Well, I would say that in a weird way, having that imposter syndrome means that you have an extra work ethic. Yeah. You make sure that you go out and think, well, look, you know, if if there is a chance that I'm I'm not good at this, I'd better make sure that on on day one um I'm prepared. And so I think that my work ethic comes out of that. And I think by 
um, watching my mum work, you know, get up at half past six and go and work in a factory until five o'clock um, every day. No, it must have been earlier because she would be at the school gates and there were lots of other parents, you know, going, your kids can walk home on their own, they're fine. And my mum always made sure she was there to pick us up so that we didn't become uh, latchkey kids. So, so watching that and watching my dad have a work ethic and having that instilled in me, I think that's the advantage for me is that I love what I do um, and I make sure that I, I grasp every chance to do uh, what I do. And I think, you know, I, I do think that, um, that and, I, and I, I look at it on social media and I see so many working class actors and working class creatives kind of sometimes finding it a struggle because mm. it is a club or it can be a club. Yeah. And, um, and you have to be welcomed into that club. But, but, you know, I don't think that should be the situation. I think that we all should start at ground level and we should all have the same chances. It's, 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 that would be a perfect world. It isn't a perfect world. And that would go, that would go yeah. for ethnicity as well as yeah, yeah. Uh, gender as well as anything. But um, yeah. we're always going to struggle to a certain extent. But I think by having that work ethic, it might just push us forwards and get us in, get us in that door. You know, when I was 17 and went to the RSC, how did I think that I would ever get a chance to do it? And 50 years later, I did because I kept working and kept changing my path. You know, um, so many of my peers have disappeared along the way because there are no uh, cabaret clubs. There are no summer seasons. Uh, Panto is, you know, dying out. So, you know, a lot of them didn't move with the times and didn't move with their creative journey. So listen, we're coming to the end of our celebration of your years, but before we finish up, we always ask our guests um, to think of an unsung hero that they would like to celebrate. So who could that be for you? Who would you like to celebrate today? I think it's got to be my mum. You know, I talked about her and I think that, you know, my mum was the one that had had her own chance, uh, didn't get it. And then, you know, you could say that she lived vicariously through me, but she didn't do it in a, uh, in a kind of, I'm pushing you, I'm pushing you. She could see that I wanted to do it. So my mum, who really uh, inspired me to do what I do, who gave me the, the absolute passion for it, you know, from that Sammy Davis Jr. impersonates um, EP, uh, through to those stories about Dracula and and you know when when my mom was ill as as she got older and you know she would always fall asleep reading and I would go in and um, close her book and it was always a, a worn out copy of From Here to Eternity um, or, or or Dracula or something something that she loved and she would she would sit reading that and I would take her glasses off and turn the light out so. You know, I would like to thank my mum for being incredible. Winnie Grimes. Winnie Grimes. Oh. And I think that, you know, when when Jody and I were on stage doing those scenes together, those, you know, big scenes in um, Venice Preserved uh, as father and daughter, then I, my mum my would have been so thrilled because not only did she have a son who got to the RSC, she had a granddaughter too. And not only did they both do it, but the, they both did it together. Mm. She would have been so, so thrilled to see that, to be there two years oh, ago. That's amazing. Oh, that's amazing. So our celebration today of Les Dennis and <laughs> Winnie Grimes. Winnie Grimes. Great, great name. Les, honestly, you know that I could, well, we have done, talk for hours and hours late <laughs> well, into have, the night. Yeah, yeah. Just listen to you talk forever. It's um so amazing to have you do this. Thank you. And I'm so glad that the listeners will get to spend a bit I've of time in your company as well. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Les. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Oh my God, I absolutely love that chat. Isn't um, he just like, honestly, I always say this to people, he's one of the nicest people and really inspiring people. I mean, that is a career, isn't it? Uh, and a From life, the, what I a know. life. Yeah, I'm, I've just, I've always um, been a huge fan of Les's actually and um, I'm, a, I'm an even bigger one now. That was just so inspiring. What a lovely man. Well, you're two of my favourite people, so it's always lovely to 
have a chat with you oh. both at the same time. Um, so that was Les Dennis. And for anybody who wants to know what he's up to, he's actually doing something super posh. Oh, go on. Yeah, he's doing HMS Pinnifort at the Coliseum, no less. Pinnifort? Pinnifort. <laughs> HMS Pinnifort. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm not posh even posh it. enough to say it. HMS, say, HMS Pinnifort. Oh, that's much better. Okay. HMS Pinnifort oh, wait, at that? the Coliseum oh, nice. uh, from the 29th of October. So um, how amazing is that? Oh, I'll see you in the bar for a visit. Lovely. Thanks so much to Les. Thanks, Les. The Proper Class podcast is produced by Michelle Farr-Scott for Rangaby Productions, edited by James Torrance, with music by Tommy Music. If you want to find out more about Hannah and Laura and why they wanted to do the Proper Class podcast, check out the bonus episode available now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.